Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. Latte, please? Oh wait, sorry. Uh, this isn't... I thought I was at a cafe ordering a latte. But, uh, but actually, what's happening is that I'm talking about Latte Doc. That's the next application in the list of KDE packages included on Slackware. Latte Doc. But, but before we get into the specifics of Latte Doc, let's talk a little bit about just kind of the concept of docs. Now, as I, as far as I know, and my... You know, I'm not a researcher. I, I don't... I, I don't... I haven't... I'm not a historian of com- computers. So I'm I'm speaking of... I'm, I'm speaking of my memory of how things went. Acknowledging uh, that a lot of what my... Even my poor memory is uh, relating to... It's filtered through my just my own attention, my own perception. So could be a little bit wrong about some of this, but I, I think, if I recall correctly, early Unix desktops had and by by early I mean like you know the 90s. Uh, early Unix desktops had had conventions that were dock like like places where you could like minimize icon or applications into an icon on your desktop and then click that icon to relaunch or to to reshow that application, that sort of thing. So I feel like that existed. And somewhere along the line, next step, the, the next step uh, desktop, which was the, the, the GUI desktop for, for the next computer in EXT, which of course doesn't exist anymore, but it was, it was a sort of an intermediary, apparently aimed largely at uh, universities and so on, a little computer that eventually became Mac OS 10, essentially. Uh, so I, I believe that the next step uh, desktop kind of used that concept of of a docking area where you could stage applications, and and this was a this was kind of a new thing in a way because for a graphical desktop to have the concept of multitasking, interestingly, was not always a thing. Like, we think of a desktop as, like, that's being its primary purpose. Like, of course your desktop would, would know that you have five different applications open. Well, at one point in computer history, that that's not the case, because at one point it wasn't really feasible for you to have five things open at the same time. Why would you be using up all your resources like that? You, you Surely you just want to go into an application and do your work there, and then go on to your next application. So, eventually... Computers got good enough to where that was a realistic expectation, and and then you needed a place to sort things and put things and and sort of stash them while you switched over to a different task or whatever. So I, I think that they kind of started as an early Unix desktop thing, got adopted by Next Step, and then eventually got m- merged into or pulled into Mac OS X, which I think, at least in, in my in my experience, was the one that really, really made it popular. Like that that brought it into the public eye. Because Apple does that, right? They they are a they're a marketing machine. They know how to appeal to to the visuals and and they really make it look pretty and, and fancy and they gave it fancy animation that they offloaded primarily onto the graphics processor. And it, it just it was 
It was an easy, cheap win that really, really worked. So well, in fact, that for me, for the longest time, like, a dock was kind of a foregone conclusion of a thing to install. Like, that was just the, that was the thing that you, that, that was how you used a desktop. You had a dock. And, and if you didn't have a dock, well, what was your other option? Your other option was to use a start menu. And that sounded an awful lot like a Windows thing. Didn't much care for that concept. So, weirdly, the dock for me for a very long time, and I think for a lot of people who come from the Mac world, a dock is, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a convenience. That is your, that's the place that you always go for the applications that you use the most. But it is also weirdly, and it almost hurts to say this now, but I mean, at the time, it, it, it is, it was, it is for some people still, it is a statement. It is an emotional statement saying, look, I am not okay with the conventions of a Windows desktop, and I don't want to feel like I'm using a Windows desktop. And I think that's okay, as as kind of silly as it might be. Like, it's not a logical statement, right? It, it's pure emotion. It's just like, I don't want to feel like I'm using Windows. That's okay. That's a, I can identify with that. I have become shockingly less sensitive to that in the past, I would say just the past maybe three years, maybe, maybe five, maybe to be charitable. But I, I, I mean, and to this day, to be honest, to, as of, you know, now, today, I still put my KDE panel up at the top of my screen. Why do I do that? Because that's where I'm used to all of my important information being at the top of my screen. Is is it weird? Yeah, it might be weird. I don't know. So the dock, which always, you know, for me, always goes at the bottom of the screen. Now, once again, it doesn't have to be there. It can go on the left as well. Actually, the left is a good contender because a lot of times you're the bottom of your screen, you'll go down to, to do a horizontal scroll bar or something and you run into your dock and so it pops back up and that gets to be annoying. But um, yeah, so the dock, goes either on the bottom of the screen or the left-hand side of the screen, and that's how you interface with your desktop. That's how you launch your applications. It's how you hide. It's where you hide applications to and show them and show them once again. So it's a it's a nice little quick convention. Now, is it underpowered? Yeah, yeah, it probably is, to be honest. Um, the dock doesn't exactly have a system tray. Is that what it's called? The system tray? I'm suddenly doubting that that's what the name of this thing is called. System system tray, right? I think it's called the system tray. Where you have your clock and your calendar and all those little icons that represent all the different services that you're running. Now, macOS had a systems tray. I didn't call it a system tray, I don't think. But up in the right corner, you you'd had you had a couple of buttons and the power users of Mac, and by power users in this context, I actually just mean anyone who installs stuff that's not by default just a Mac application, like some some third-party application. A lot of times those third-party applications would stick something up in the, the system tray. So if you were one of those Mac users who dared to look outside the Apple marketplace or, or whatever, you know, this Apple ring of influence, um, you, you had stuff up there in the top right. I mean, even something simple like Dropbox would have an icon in the upper right corner. So... Um, that was kind of a sign if you if you had stuff in the right hand corner of your Mac at least at one point I don't know what the scene is like today but at one point that was kind of a signal that oh, you're you're a daring computer user you use stuff that that didn't that that doesn't come straight from Apple or the the you know one or two key Apple quote unquote friendly uh, companies so docs it, it's an important interface it was an important interface concept for a while. 
And I don't know that it is anymore. So now that I've talked about docs for eight minutes, um, yeah, I don't know that it's a it's an important concept anymore. I don't feel like people are quite as precious about having a doc. Although, I mean, some people are, right? I mean, especially, you know, the, I think the closer you are from your migration from one platform to another, I think the, the harder you cling to to those those interface concepts. So I think probably people just off the boat from Mac OS right now, um, probably a doc would be a, a great little feature. Well, a Latte Doc is included in Slackware, which I didn't even realize until I hit the hit this place in the list. I didn't realize I'd heard of Latte Doc as a as a, a doc for the, you know, the compatible with KDE Plasma Desktop, but I, I didn't actually know that it was like right here. And it is, it sure is, it's right here. Uh, I hope that it doesn't launch every single time I start my computer now. Now there was a, there was a doc-like interface, it was like a widget, a plasmoid, at one point. Or, or maybe that was just something that I used to do, where you could take a panel and sort of shrink it down, and you could make it into a doc-like thing. Um, but this is this is a proper dock. Like it it is a uh, an auto hiding if that's what you want it to be an auto hiding list of of applications that you have open and you can cycle through them and they get bigger as you roll over them and you can click on them to bring them to well to either bring them to the front or to take yourself to them depending on your settings. Um, it's got a little useless analog clock which really I wish was a binary clock and it's got a bunch of different settings like if you right click on I think any icon no right click on the clock icon yeah uh, you can edit edit con- configure configure latte that's what I'm looking for configure latte and that brings up a preference uh, box you can put the dock on the bottom of the screen the left or the top or the right of the screen you can align it in the center left right or justify you can cause it to what it calls dodge active which means if there's a an active window that intrudes upon the space of latte dock then latte dock shrinks to the the, the off screen and then if you roll over that area with your mouse, then it pops back up for you until you roll out, and so on. Uh, you've got auto-hide, dodge-maximized, windows just go below the dock at all times, um, on-demand sidebar, lots of different options. I haven't even, I haven't tried them all. Uh, and then there's the appearance, so you can adjust the length of the dock, the background of the dock, the, uh, the items on the dock, how they behave when you roll over them, and you've got an advanced mode, that gives you even more options than than that. So lots to choose from. Really, really nice little dock. If you are, if you think you like the dock interface, then, then Latte is one to try. Like it really is, and and it's it's actually one of the few sort of remaining active ones. I mean, I feel like there used to be a lot more docks out there, and they've all kind of started to dwindle. Which again, I think I feel like the whole dock idea has become a little bit less urgent for a lot of people. And actually, all this talk of a latte kind of makes me want to go get a fresh cup of coffee. Let's go do that really quick. I know it's not time for a coffee break. Let's do it anyway. <laughs> Okay, enough of that. Let's move on to the next one. Layer Shell Cute. Layer Shell Cute is another Wayland library, and Wayland apparently, and this is, I mean, this isn't something that I know, it's just something that I've read, but Wayland, from what I understand, has this concept of a, a surface, and a surface is a, sort of a, a broadcast 
to to the rest of the system that there are paintable pixels here. So, for instance, if you're creating an application, then you might for for Wayland, then uh, uh, for the process to of of Wayland to display it, um, Wayland will take your application and assign it uh, as a surface. And and again, that surface could mean that there are pixels that need to be painted in your system memory, or it might mean that there are pixels that want to be painted from the GPU. Either way, that's a surface. But in order for Wayland to sort of understand what kind of surface a, a, a collection of pixels are, they need, there has to be some kind of um, differentiation, sort of of priority almost. So for instance, an application needs to be refreshed, probably, more often than your wallpaper. So a shell is how a surface in Wayland are kind of contextualized for for Wayland. Uh, so this uh, Wayland, no, not La- Wayland, uh, layer shell cute is, are some, just some header files, and, uh, it, it's, it, it, it apparently helps ensure that, that your application, your cute application is being assigned correctly within, within the surface, uh, system of Wayland. The, the header files, there are two of them. There's window and shell, or I should say shell.h, window.h. And, oh, that's annoying. I'm gonna use more? No, I'm not, apparently. Most. I want to see this. There we go, most. Okay, so it's 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 just a layer shell, cute shell, underscore h. Uh, the thing to, to notice here is it includes... Uh, oh, actually, there's a couple. There's okay. There might be three, but anyway. So namespace layer shell cute sets the right environment so that shells created from now on use WLR layer shell. Uh, so that sets up the shell subsystem, and then the window header file uh, identifies, for instance, the anchor top, which is, as you might expect, the top edge of the anchored rectangle. Bot- anchor bottom, the bottom edge of the anchor rectangle. Anchor left, the left edge, and then, yes, anchor right is the right edge. So, I mean, that's describing a, a square, right? Which is what a surface is. Uh, this enum type is used to specify the layer where a surface can be put in. That's layer background equals zero, layer bottom equals one, layer top equals two, layer overlay equals three. The enum type is used to specify how the layer surface handles keyboard focus. So this is all like, you know, window management kinds of kind of stuff, or, or I guess I guess it's more like, you know, well, I mean, it's a compositor is what it is. But I mean, that will play into window management uh, and, and sort of, the your 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 window the way that windows are displayed and handled on your desktop that's what layer shell cute is those are the two uh, most important header files i guess there is that other one but um I'm, i don't think it's important to look at that one so anyway if you're if you're programming uh you know for cute and you anticipate using Wayland, uh, this is uh, something to include in your application, probably. Next up is libgravatar. 
Lib Gravatar is, uh, if you're if you're aware of what Gravatar is, you can probably guess what Lib Gravatar is. It's a it's a library that makes it easy for an application to sort of ping Gravatar and authenticate with it and bring in your avatar. So Gravatar is a project, sort of almost like a um, what's that one called? Uh, open identity, sort of almost. Or open ID, I think is what it's called. Um, I mean, it's not like open ID, but it, Gra- Gravatar is it, it is a central place for you to have an I- your your identity. You you put your identity. You, you you create an account. There is what I'm trying to say. You create an account, and and that's your account. Your your human person account. That that's you managing that account. But in that account, you could, for instance, have an avatar, and then anything that uses that 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 can interface with Gravatar, when you sign up for that service, like whether it's, um, I don't know, a, a, um, like a, an email provider or a social network of some sort or whatever you sign up for on the internet, if, if it interfaces with Gravatar, then you can tell it, okay, well, here's where my, here's where my avatar lives. It's over there on, on Gravatar. I, I'll give you, I'll, I'll enter my Gravatar credentials here. You can authenticate and then you can you can pull the avatar in from gravatar and use it here on this account in other words you as a person are in theory only setting up your representation on the internet your graphical representation on the internet once in one place in gravatar and you're using it across lots and lots of different places and i i I do have a gravatar somewhere out there, um, and I, I feel like it's one of those things where very, very frequently the service that I'm signing up with, when it interfaces with gravatar, it makes it so seamless that I, I am almost rarely even conscious of it, and it just works. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think if more things could use libgravatar, that would be pretty neat. Libgravatar is included here on Slackware. So if you are developing a an application that 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 has a reasonable expectation of of interfacing with the internet, you know, not not everything I I think needs to do that, but some things it, it kind of makes sense. And certainly the KDE Personal Information Manager or the PIM suite could use that, right? Because you're emailing people. Maybe you want that 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 sort of like little you know your your recognizable avatar, whatever it is. Maybe it's just your headshot. Maybe it's just your face. Maybe it's uh maybe it's a graphic that you identify with or, or a logo that you have assigned to yourself. Whatever it is, you might want to have that available when you're sending an email and, and attaching uh, a little avatar. So LibGravatar makes it really easy for, for programmers to interface with Gravatar. And I think that's good. I think that's really useful, actually. It's one of those really, really useful conveniences. You know, it's not, it's not essential, but it really is kind of nice w- when you want it. It's nice that it's available. All right, next up is uh, libkcddb. Cddb is a CD database out there on the internet where people enter the song, the track, the the song titles, and how many songs are on an album, and the album, the the time of the songs, and the album length, and and the album artist, and and so on of all the different albums that they like. Of course, this was started for compact discs, which no one really uses anymore. And I say no one, acknowledging that there are several people who actually use CDs still. Um, but it was it was very you know it was it was the main vehicle of listening to music for for a little while. So it really really made sense that it was a CD 
DB then. Um, now, I, I don't know. Is it still, does it still work as a CD DB? Maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of things are recorded digitally ultimately, so compact disc. That doesn't really say anything about digital. Anyway, um, it is a useful thing. You'll, you'll find uh, lots of sort of uh, lib what is it, ID3 tagger applications are are some are, are things that frequently interface with or or can draw information from CDDB. This library, as you can expect, enables that. So CDDB retrieval. Now CDDB, like like libgravatar, I guess, um, or rather lib libkcddb, because this is for specifically for the KDE framework. So um, and and that way, you know, you have you have a lot of the conveniences that the KDE framework provides you. So this is not, this isn't something that's necessarily general purpose. I mean, yeah, I mean, it isn't. You, 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 this, this, this has, this has dependencies on the KDE framework. So if you're developing something for the KDE application suite, then this is the library that you would want to use to talk to CDDB. Sometimes talking to CDDB just means getting information from the database, but other times it also means submitting information back to the database. And all of that stuff is enabled through through this this library. And as you might expect it, it's a bunch of header files, a couple of SO library files, and uh, that's it. It's pretty straightforward uh, in a way. You can see it at work with KID3, which I think I, I'm sure I must have talked about by now because that's a KDE application and it would have been included in the KDE package uh, software set, which is what I am talking about still today. Libk CDDB. After that comes Libk, I wonder how many Libk's we're going to have, Compact Disk, which is the CD playing and ripping library, again, specifically for the KDE framework, which is significant because when you do that, when when there's this kind of, I guess, unification or centralization of all of these libraries, that's when you get those really, really convenient things, like there's a widget up at the, in your system tray, and, and it shows you all of your, all of the different media streams that you could control from 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 your desktop which doesn't seem all that big of a deal but I really really appreciate this widget. Uh, I don't know if you know the one I'm talking about and I don't really know how to describe it. I think it's literally just called like media yeah, it's called media player. It's a it's a widget that you'll get sometimes in your system tray and on the KDE5 desktop on Slackware and it it's a little circle at least on mine it's a little circle with either a play or a pause button icon in it and you can click on it and it it does as i say it shows you the different streams happening and you might think well why would i have multiple streams of media going on my desktop well there are lots of reasons actually uh you might be on a um a meeting with someone and you have a media player uh, also uh paused to you know that that could be playing music but you don't want it to be playing music cuz you're just about to go to a video conference or a video meeting so you can pause that player from from that widget or maybe you have maybe you're editing video but you've got a, a music player in the background and you want to be able to edit video for a while and then um switch over to a different task for a little while and and at that point why not start the media backup your your uh, music backup or or maybe you've got uh, a music thing and and you decide that you're going to go to a, a video lecture on the internet and because the lecture is just spoken word then maybe you could have both of the things playing you could have your media 
you know, your jazz music or, or ambient music, whatever you've got going, uh, sort of off in the background while you're listening to the, the, the person speaking to you in the, in the lecture or the podcast, whatever. So that's, you know, it's really nice to have a, a whole listing of all the different things going on on your desktop and the ability to control them, skip ahead a track, pause it, play it, whatever. So that's a, that's a widget I use a lot, and libkc, I mean libk compact disk will, you know, it hooks into that, and and it does that by just being header files that you could use in your application. So you don't have to you don't have to figure all that stuff out. It's just it's happening for you. Now you've got other things happening too. For instance, you've got uh, the position of playback, like where if you pause it, where where do you start back up, or 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 you know if you want to check on on the progress, then what should the widget display for you? And so, or not that particular widget, but whatever application you're viewing this information from, uh, how, what should it show you? How does it get that information? Well, a lot of that is here in libk compact disk. So it's useful. And I think not only is it useful, it is it is something that helps sort of bring all of the components together. And it saves programmers a lot of time, obviously. If you, if you want to have a media player and you don't want to exclude compact disk playback, it's relatively easy to, to handle because of this library. All right, let's talk about libk DC raw. Uh, it's a C++ interface around the DC raw binary used to decode raw picture files. I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to talk about DC raw a little bit. DC raw is not what this is. This is libk DC raw. So this is building upon DC raw, but DC raw itself is a command written in C and uh, it, it parses raw photo data. And if you aren't really sure what raw photo a raw photograph is, then I will attempt to explain. So when you take a picture with a camera that shoots raw, it has to be a camera that that actually shoots in the raw format. And and I say the raw format. There's not just one raw format. Raw is more of an adjective. It's just what kind of photograph is that? It's it's a raw photo. What does that mean? Well, it means that there is not a or it it is it betrays the fact that there's not a one-to-one ratio between the camera sensor, the thing recording the light levels and the color saturation of the of whatever you're taking a photograph of, there's not a one-to-one relationship between the camera sensors and the pixel that you eventually see drawn on your screen when you ask to look at that photograph. Because a camera sensor, it's not recording the luma value and the chroma value for R, G, and B all 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 at once, all in, in one sensor. That that it's one sensor for each value, I I, I I guess. I'm not sure. But you know, there there's more sensors than there are pixels in the end. So pixel or or rather those values that get recorded by the camera sensor have to be combined to produce a pixel of a certain color and brightness for your screen. Before that happens, before that translation has happened, you have a raw photograph. That's what raw is. So DC raw is an application that that looks at that raw sensor data and figures out how all of those bits and pieces go together in order to produce a, a picture for you on your screen. Without 
an application to combine to combine that data, you wouldn't really see the photograph. You would I don't know what you would see. You'd see a bunch of binary data, I guess. So there's got to be something in there to translate this raw data, this raw raw data um into something like, I don't know, like a JPEG or a PNG or or whatever into a viewable image. I mean, there are applications like Darktable, things like that. They can display the raw photo. Like they, they know how to, they, they use DC raw or maybe libk DC raw and maybe the case of like uh, K, uh, no, Digicam. Um, you know, they, they can display that for you. Um, and I, and I, I don't know if there's an intermediary f- uh, term for when you're looking at that. I, I, I guess there must be. But whatever that is, living in memory, there it is, on your screen, n- drawn onto uh, some, some window on your desktop, living in, in memory. And you can look at it that way in your Digicam or Darktable or whatever, or you can export it as a photograph, like a JPEG or a PNG or a WebP or, or whatever format you prefer. Or you could save it as a raw and then someone else on the other end needs to, again, have a raw parser so that they can look at, at, at that data. Now, the nice thing about raw data is that it is it is raw data. It's, it's, it's got all that data about a scene that you have photographed and nothing's been locked down. You could, you can run it, you, you can use DC raw or some other application to look at the data and it will that will give you a an interpretation of that data or you could you know write your own parser for raw and then you could see the photograph through the eyes of your own parser now what that would look like largely depends on how good of a programmer you are but you could do that and so it's you know that it's raw data looking at it is not a destructive process you can look at all that data all you want nothing's been lost obviously when you do try to cram it into a a format so that a lot of other people can see your raw photo easily that's when you start losing data now of course you can export it so you don't you know you still have your raw data you have a copy of that but i'm saying when you export it as a jpeg for instance let's go with jpeg because it's it's a fairly it's a a very lossy format. So let's say you export it as JPEG, then you've you've thrown away a bunch of values, right? Because I mean, RAW has all the values that your digital camera could possibly use, and JPEG only has some I don't know million values possible. So you're translating it from everything to a very little, a relatively small bucket. And depending on how how much you're willing to lose when when exporting as a jpeg it, it may be a very small bucket i mean uh, or, or png you know where you can do an indexed png and only have like 256 web co- web safe colors in your png well now you've lost quite a lot from your um from your raw photograph haven't you but maybe that's that's okay because as long as your computer can approximate what the photograph is supposed to look like then that's good enough the weird thing is and and the minute maybe this is why i like it so much this topic the weird thing is once you start talking about well what what does that photo really look like you start to kind of realize how much perception matters on on or, or interpretation matters on perception, I guess. Because you, you take a picture of a nice green field with a beautiful blue sky. And in its raw form, let's assume, hopefully, that your raw photo captures a lot of that blueness in the sky and a lot of the green in the, in the grass and the, the dark shades that were being cast by that 
tree over there on the right, and and all the the sparkles of the sunlight on the the surface of the pond over there on the left. Beautiful in its raw form. It's also huge, and you have to send it to a bunch of people. You have to post it on your photo sharing uh, website or whatever, and so you have to get it into a format that's a reasonable size and and reasonably well distributed so people can just open a web browser and look at the photo without, I don't know, downloading it and running it through some kind of raw decoder. So you do that, and then it's a question of not really what what you took a picture of, but now it's a question of what you want your picture to represent. And there are trade-offs to be made. There are always trade-offs to be made, even in, on a film camera, but in, in digital, I think, especially, because digital only has, relatively, um, a narrow field of tolerance. At a certain point, the, when, when stuff gets really, really dark, it just the computer just has to quit trying to differentiate, you know, the 79% dark from the 78% dark. Like, how do you, how do you differentiate those two shades of, of black? Well, computers don't. They just say, ah, it's dark enough, let's just paint it black. And so it's just, it, it goes, and, and that's classically a problem area for computers, is those really, really deep shadows, things like that. Computers very frequently, if you look at a net video or something, look in the shadows sometimes, and you might be surprised at what you don't see, or, or the, the, the artifacts that you do see. And, and the, the same is true for the, the white, the hot spots, the really white, bright spots in a, in a photo, a lot of, in a digital photo. A lot of times, that is just a, it's, it is, it's just a white spot. And if you were to see the same spot on, uh, in the raw photo, or on film, you would realize, oh, well, there's all kinds of gradation in there that that just got reduced to one big white blob within um in 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 the translation so that's something to think about i guess when you're photographing is that you're not necessarily always trying to reproduce exactly what you saw because you're probably not going to be able to but your job as a computer user becomes how can you express what you liked about what you saw and that that then compelled you to take that photograph it's it's an interesting concept so anyway that's enough about libkdcraw i guess libkdcraw takes the 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 concepts and the principles of dcraw i guess and stuffs it into a library which dcraw does not do it explicitly says not going to bother doing that um, in fact, there's a, an FAQ on the author's website where the author just says that um, that doing library, you know, code in a library is, is is difficult and messy, and he just prefers to um, to do the the command. That's that's how he sees DC raw. So if you um, if you need DC raw it, within a, a KDE application, you can get it by using libkdc raw, which is a C++ interface around DC raw. Which again, I, I'm pretty sure DC raw itself is in in C uh, in yeah in its C code. But anyway, that's um, that's libkdc raw. Very useful. Very cool to think about how pictures and images are represented on computers. All right, let's talk about getting some coffee for real this time, and then we'll come back, take some listener email, finish up the show.
Welcome back. I have coffee. You should also have coffee, maybe even a latte. But if not, that's okay. Any any coffee will do. Uh, let's take some listener feedback. I got an email from Hacker Defo who very, very kindly <laughs> emailed me several times because I kept having trouble with uh, some email addresses because I've had to kind of restructure a bunch of my email. And um, in fact, my entire, I think my site structure in general is going to get restructured. That That's the long-term goal. I have too many random websites out there that nobody goes to anyway. I just need to bring them into one domain and have things on, this, on in subdirectories. I really feel like for a while there, it just seemed like domain name purchasing was the thing to do. And I don't, I don't exactly know why that is. I, I mean, there was never any idea in my brain of like, oh, I should get Slacker Media in case a an entity called Slacker Media arises and wants to buy the domain from me for a million dollars. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like an investment. It was just like that would be fun. And you don't really think about the long term maintenance of that. And now I think about long term maintenance a lot more because it's it's been 10 years and and I just realized that I don't need to do that. I could just have one domain and then have subdirectories on that domain. You know, like internet sites were designed. So yeah, I I'm I'm learning important lessons here. But anyway, um Hacker Defo very kindly emailed me very very patiently and and we kind of he actually helped me quite a lot figure out um you know what needed to be worked on so i really appreciate that okay so hacker defo says a couple of episodes ago a few listeners went uh, vented their anger and displeasure at system d my view is that in a battle between usability and ideology usability will always win the majority vote. System D might not be great ideologically, but it brings so many usability features to the table. As long as System D is open source, I personally don't see too many issues with it. And for the folks who don't like the ideology aspect of System D, there are so many great alternatives out there. Void Linux, DevOne Linux, MX Linux, Antix Linux, Geeks Linux, Artix Linux, Salix Linux, Zenwalk, Linux, and of course, good old Slackware, to name a few. Actually, to name nine, specifically Hacker Defo. Uh, now, as to Systemd developer Leonard Pottering, employed by Microsoft, I don't see anything evil or unprecedented there. The creator of GNOME, Miguel de Acaza, has also worked for Microsoft. Python creator Guido Van Rossum has been employed at various stages by Google, Dropbox, and Microsoft. And, lately, I'd end up with a uh, oh, and lastly, I'd I I would like to end with a privacy-focused messenger application suggestion. It's called Session, and it's simply superb in my limited usage experiments. It's cross-platform, open source, and does not require a mobile number or email ID to get started. Give this one a go. GetSession.org. That is the URL being referenced here. Get Session. Dot org. So that's G-E-T-S-E-S-S-I-O-N dot org. And I have not tried this yet, I have to admit. Um, and I'll tell you why. While Session seems really, really cool, and I may check it out, the, the problem with chat applications is eternally that they're only as good as the people you are chatting with. And I have spent so much time getting people onto various chat platforms that I just, I don't know that I personally have the, the, um, the credit to get people to switch, to follow me to yet another 
chat application. It's it's a real trick. It's a tricky. It's it, it is very tricky. And I, I I just I wish I remember back in like two thousand four, two thousand six, two thousand probably up till 2009, it seemed like there was almost a moment where where you could actually just use whatever chat application you wanted. Because the, the big ones were using XMPP, Jabber, and, and it, it just all kind of worked out. And that was great. That was really nice. And then everyone wandered away from that, and now we are, we're back to where we started. We've got dozens of different chat, chat applications. We've got dozens of different video conferencing applications. And it's just so annoying. It just really is. It, it just, it's one of those things about technology where you just, you, it, it's not, it, it is not pretty. And w- especially with protocols, like with open source, the, 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 the easy mantra is that choice is ideal. Like the more choice you have, the better. Like there's no problem when there's choice. You, that's a good thing. You want the diversity of, of, of options. But with protocols, I feel like that's a different story. Protocols, you yes, great to have choice. I, I do still want the choice of protocols, but I, I also want the, the front ends that talk pro- those protocols to to talk more than one protocol. So if you've got an applic- a chat application front end, then let's let's talk a lot of different protocols like copete and like um what's the other one the pigeon one uh oh is it called pigeon it might be called pigeon i was thinking the i was thinking lib purple but I, I, actually pigeon is the front end so yeah like do that like that that's the way to bring it all together for me or or what is it rocket chat rocket chat it does a lot of different um protocols so i just wish that was that was a thing but of course and, and i mean obviously i've just listed three different projects whose goal is to do exactly that oh franz uh, is was another one um so that's four four different things that 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 strive to look across protocol and and bring all of those chat options together. And I, I just wish that was that was the default. I wish that would, would be something that everyone everyone would do. Um and, and that's the you know the importance of open protocols too. Cause I mean if people have to reverse engineer the protocol for uh, your Discord application or something, then that makes it a lot harder to, to just connect right to Discord. Or if someone has to write a bot, which I've had to do several times, write the bot for Discord so that it can pipe all of the messages to and from element, uh, ma- you know, ma- matrix, so you can bridge the two. It's just, it gets, it, it's, it's annoying. And, and, it, and it's annoying, not just because it's mildly inconvenient, but it's annoying because there's a lot of, um, rep- there's a lot of reinvention of the wheel, right? Where we're all writing these stupid bridges or, uh, all these application, a- application developers are having to, um, reverse engineer the same the same code it's just it's silly it feels inefficient it feels like a waste of our technological uh, budget okay anyway back up to system d stuff so hacker defo says um i i liked this this thing that hacker defo said my view is that in a battle between usability and ideology usability will always win the majority vote i i think that's um that's a that's a gem right there i mean that's that's got to be right. It's, it's very, very true. Ideology versus usability. We've seen it time and time again. Usability is, I mean, to be to be fair, you know, that that that's a dangerous quote because we could say, oh, well, ideology versus usability, usability. So therefore, uh, you know, the, the, the reverse logic of that would be that therefore
or Microsoft Office is more usable than LibreOffice because Microsoft Office has more installs than LibreOffice, I, I assume, I don't know. Um, and that would be, you know, I, I think I would argue that that's probably not true at all. I mean, I don't, don't actually know, I haven't used Microsoft Office, but LibreOffice is quite usable, I have, I have found. And, and that's coming from someone who doesn't use Office, didn't use op Office applications very frequently. And I, I've really just kind of taught myself the, the, the wonders of LibreOffice over the, the past couple of years and loving it, absolutely loving it. So you can't, you, you know, it, it's not, it isn't a super flexible statement possibly, um, but I think it's an important statement because I, I, I think there's a lot of truth there. And, and I, I, you know, I don't know if System D for me personally, even if this quote applies to System D for me personally, because once again, I'm happy with either. I'm, I'm happy with System D. I'm happy with no System D. From my perspective, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. That said, there's a lot of things that System D can do to make certain things really, really usable. The way that it manages containers is really, really useful. And yes, you can you, you can do things to, to help manage without system D. You can use other app, other application applications. You could you could install Kubernetes and and orchestrate that way. All of that is very very true. But there are some really nice features in System D. Whether or not that is more important than the ideology, I don't know. Um, and and especially when the ideology from a developer standpoint, I I wonder how much from the developer standpoint, I wonder how much the ideology of no, well, this is what a Linux system looks like versus this is what you could you could have instead. I don't I, I don't have the insight for you know why so many developers apparently seem to prefer system D. I mean, I, and I say that because so many, so many distributions have switched over to system D. And you could say, well, yeah, that's a corporate push though. You know, like maybe this 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 company that's done a lot of development in the system D has a lot of influence and so we're going to push it into the into the other Linux distributions. But I mean, you can't tell me that Debian was influenced. Debian of all projects was influenced by some other company. I mean, that's I mean, by a company. Like I just I don't buy that. I don't think Debian would have switched to system D if if there wasn't a good reason for it. I I guess I could be wrong, but that's just how I feel about it. And you can't tell me that um, that Ubuntu would have switched to System D if there wasn't a good reason. Because Ubuntu, I mean, that's the company, or rather, that's the distribution. Canonical is the company that doesn't. They they don't make rational choices at all ever. Like that's just not something they're they're. That's not something Canonical does. I mean, I could I, I couldn't even list all the things that they've decided to go off on their own in their own direction for. Even and and time after time they they fail. They're, what was Mir and um and Unity and Ubuntu One and you know all the things that I usually list when I'm talking about Ubuntu. They they, they just do whatever they feel like, and and I don't feel like it's it's always rational. I mean, I, I really do. I feel like a lot of times they are very obstinate and they do what they, they, they try to do something, even if it's going to splinter the market and then it doesn't work out for them and they switch back to the thing. I mean, even system D they avoided for, for a while and they were using whatever that service command is, I guess just system V. Um, and, and then finally they switched over to system D. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that, that I, I, I am, I feel like there's got to be a there's got to be a a, a development driven reason for switching to system D. And again, I don't have the experience that low level 
of coming up with, you know, why why I would or would not want system D. And the argument that the argument that it's it's outside of the correct way of structuring a Linux system, uh, while I get what DeepGeek, for instance, was saying, like where you have essentially your your kernel and then your user space. And those are the two components. And then system D comes in and sort of adds like this third component really. Like there's there's the kernel, and then there's system D, and then there's your user space. And I don't know that that's been my experience, even when system D has been a component of 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 a distribution. Because once again, like you have to have an init system. Is it going to be system D, or is it going to be something else? You have to make a choice. I mean, and and that's that's that. Like you have to have something running your init. That that's that it's got to be there. And so, what do you want to slot in? Now, I will agree that that's a fake modularity because, in practice, a lot of distributions have system D as a dependency of like the whole user space, which I think is wrong. Like, I personally, I think that's a bug with package manager. I think that if you're going to have system D, great, that's fine, but have it have it be more like a meta package of an init system, and you could put in system D or uh, what is it, init or or minute or whatever that other one was, although maybe both of those two are gone, open RC, uh, you know, whatever system you want to slot in there as your init system. So, but as far as I know, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that's a system debug. I think that's a package management, uh, you know, structure of, 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 of how a distribution is built bug, which I would, I, I absolutely argue that that should not be the case. Like you should be able to remove system D and still have a working system. I mean, as long as you put something else, you know, a required init package in its place, you should have a working uh, distribution, but if you could, if you can show me that that's not possible with System D, then yeah, I'd be, I'd be keen, I'd, I'd be keen on seeing that. But as far as I know, that is possible. You can just, you can swap that out. Still, I mean, distributions are doing it today. It's just that a lot of the distributions happen to have the System D package, you know, the deb or the RPM or whatever, marked as a, you know, if this gets uninstalled, then uninstall everything else. And that's just silly. Okay. Anyway, that's System D. I acknowledge that this is a conversation <laughs> that has that probably nobody else is talking about. I'm just glad that this is a civil conversation. Like I said in the previous episode or the episode before that. This was the most probably lucid system D conversation I've ever had. Uh, and that has been super refreshing because at, at one point in its history, I do not feel like there were, there, there, you, you just couldn't have a rational conversation about it. People were just so emotional about it, which, you know, I, I guess I get, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I do get, honestly, I don't, I don't know that I get quite that emotionally caught up in, in something like that. But I mean, I'm sure I do over something, you know? Anyway, uh, libkde games. That's the next and last package of this episode. It contains common code and data for many KDE games. K-game clock, K-game pop-up item, K-game rendered item, K-game rendered object item, K-game renderer, KG theme, KG theme provider, KG theme selector. I'm I'm the high score. I'm I'm highlighting some of these because these are really you know especially theme. I mean that's such an easy one. You open up any KDE game practically, and and you know what themes are going to be available. 
you know, you, and you know where to get them. And you, you choose the Egyptian one or you choose the default one and there they are. They're, they're right there and, and then you, you beat the game or, you, you know, you, you play the game uh, and, and you get a high score and it goes into the little high score table. All of these things are, are pretty familiar if you've played any number of, of the KDE games, as I've done throughout this um, exploration of the KDE software set in Slackware. And, and that kind of, um, that kind of uh, un- unification. I, I keep saying unification, but I think there's another word. Oh, integration, I guess. But it really is, I guess, unification because it's not really integration. It's not like the games are integrated with one another. They just happen to have a unified set of features. And it makes it feel very familiar. Even if you've not played the game, you generally know where you can find stuff or what to expect and so on. And then as a developer, you have a bunch of tools here that you don't have to work on. You know that there's a high score widget. It's right there in K high score. You know that there's a sound set that you could use. It's right there, K sound. Uh, the themes and how to get new themes and to uh, select a theme and, and all of that other stuff. It's it's all here in lib KDE games. It's no surprise. I mean, this is th- these are libraries. We're going to be in lib for a while here in the KDE section. So these are all libraries that provide functionality for the developers. This is classic developer stuff and it's it's great stuff if you're going to start writing software for KDE this would be one of your first stops you know the, this these libraries this is the stuff providing all of the cool little tools that you're going to want to use in your application so that you don't have to re- reinvent a bunch of wheels and the amount of these libraries the amount of code that they just gift to each developer in in some cases is huge i mean it's 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 almost it's almost embarrassing in some cases i mean i've i've definitely written enough hacked together programs to know that you can you know with the right set of libraries it it's almost like you're not writing the application anymore. You're just stringing someone else's code together. And that's okay. It's open source. It's supposed to work like that. In fact, I dare say, as I've hinted several times in the past, I dare say it should be more like that. Like, I don't know how that's going to happen, uh, but but that's what I would like. Like, I, I don't... I'm not precious about programming, personally. Um, I think there's a lot of space for for components to exist and to get just strung together in the play in, in the way that a user wants them to get strung together. I mean that was after all the original idea of the Unix terminal, the pi- Linux pipe or U- Unix pipes, the pipe construct. That was the idea. Let's pipe a, a list function into the line count function, and then we can get the total of lines contained in the, in this, or how many files there are in this directory. Let's pipe the cat function out to the uh, function for a line count, and then we can get a, a number for how many lines there are in this file, and so on. So, I mean, people sort of quote-unquote programmed all kinds of cool things using pipes and that's just stringing other people's code together so let's do that for everything else like why 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 should it be difficult for someone to to quickly whip up a a digital card deck i just want i want i want a thing that shows me the the face of a card in a deck so that i can draw cards and and get random objects on my screen a digital deck of cards, obviously. Why should that be any harder than sort of describing what you want to the computer, more or less, and then just making it happen? You shouldn't have to know about refresh rates and what 
toolkit you're you're going to use and what codec the images are 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 encoded as what, what what format they're encoded as and so on it should just it should just be you shouldn't have to program the button and what uh what function it calls there should just it should just just be able to sort of like, I don't know, drag and drop or something. And I know there are applications that do that. I'm just saying it should be that easy. It really should. It should be that easy to program today. In the modern computer world, it should be so easy to program. And it's not. And these libraries don't make it that easy. But that's the kind of thing that I think we should all be shooting for. Is like what an experienced developer sees when they see these libraries. That's what I would love for us all to see at some point when we're when we sit down to program. Anyway, those are my thoughts on programming, completely unsolicited. Thank you very much for listening to my show this week. I will go have some more coffee and then I'll be back next week for more software from the KDE software set of Slackware 15. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Over. There can't be any more doubt of it. We've won.